All right, welcome back. Thank you. Do you? There's my second slide. <laughs> the author of the book of James is God. The writer is James, brother of Jesus. Between 45 and 50 AD is sometime when he wrote it, and it's written to those scattered from Jerusalem being believers, scattered because of persecution. We're dealing with faith in action, which is one of the evidences of true spirituality. Uh, along with self-control, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, patience, and submission to God through prayer, James teaches in his book what true spirituality actually looks like and how to actually accomplish being truly spiritual. Uh, so we're going to talk about mechanics and definition of what true spirituality actually is. Pisteos, feminine noun, means complete dependency based on response. Hopefully that's starting to become ingrained into your head at least on Monday nights, whether you stick with that definition the rest of your week or not, I don't care. But for the sake of understanding what we're doing, uh, we need to know that definition uh, of a complete dependency. It again identifies a relationship between two or more objects in which one of the objects is completely dependent upon the other for something or action. <clears throat> the model of humanity which Christ showed while he was on earth was that God the Father initiates and mankind responds. He did this by self-discipline and maintaining his state as a human and as a god by not using his attributes as god actually putting them aside while he was on earth um, not using them so he became subject to things like we are such as the flesh <laughs> human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint human viewpoint is a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system it is therefore sight-based, and by sight we mean perception-based. Um, it is based upon what we can see, perceive, understand. Divine viewpoint is faith-based. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking, which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. In other words, we can't see these truths, but we are taught them, and our job is to depend upon them, and when we do, we operate under divine viewpoint, or living uh, on a faith-based model. Doing so is a part of the faith rest, and we are required and, and commanded by God to develop this faith rest technique, which is the act of relying upon God's promises and doctrines through faith during circumstances which are humanly difficult or trying. Um, take that out of the trial context that we're in with James chapter 1. That's our whole command for life, is to rest in faith upon Him, um, in and out of every moment. This is an ability that we are to develop and practice, it requires knowledge of God's principles and then volitional application of Bible doctrine by placing our dependency upon it. The faith rest technique allows the believer to rest in faith upon God because of his promises and doctrines despite the degree of difficulty of his circumstances, whether that is zero or high, 100, whatever you want to give the scale, it doesn't really matter. Whether we're under difficult circumstances or not, our job is to operate under the faith rest technique. <clears throat> In our context of James chapter 1, we are talking about trials and testings. Um, we're using the word pyrodzo from the Greek for test, and it means something which attempts to learn the nature or character of something through evaluation. So when I say the word test, that's what I'm referring to, that whole definition. Um, hopefully by now we're starting to be familiar with that enough to be able to understand how it fits within the different passages we're looking at. Um, the understanding 
of parazo is that of a or parasmois is that of a circumstance which tests an individual's resolve, nature, or character in an attempt to discover what it is made of, whether it possesses that resolve, nature, or character or not. Now, last week we introduced this phrase, tes idios epithumios, which literally means the one specific lust, and it comes from part one of oh, James one fourteen. I don't know. You got you got a bunch of them. Yeah, potentially three different pronunciations. Be creative. So, taste idios epithumios comes from part one of the study on James one fourteen. Well, that's what we looked at last week. Um, it literally is rendered the own specific lust, and it's a reference to the specific lust pattern of a an individual. Each of us we identified last week has a specific lust pattern. Um, and that lust pattern is identified through analysis of dominant sinful behavior, which we have observed by taking a self-inventory of our own actions and contrasting that to God's blueprint, which is righteousness. Now, there are three types of dominant lust patterns within humanity, so you have one of these as the dominant lust pattern of your life. I don't really want to know what it is. Some of you, if you're number three, will probably reveal that yourself. Um, others of you, hopefully I don't find out. But you have three options here for a dominant lust pattern. It's a part of your genetic structure. And the first is lust of the flesh. The second, lust of the eyes. Third is pride of life. We get that from 1 John 2.16. that says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The lust of the flesh, last week we identified as being a desire to satisfy the senses and a desire to satisfy the emotions. Now, let me backtrack here that emotions concept I'm not talking about angry sad that kind of emotion so I did I almost changed this word but I wanted to stay consistent so when I'm talking about this desire to satisfy the emotions it's that whether you're satisfying the senses physically or even mentally because the thought of satisfying senses that's a feeling that we get that we want to satisfy at times if you're a lust of the flesh person that that concept is what I'm referring to when I say desire to satisfy the emotions that feeling of I long for this <laughs> Because that's part of the whole satisfying the senses concept. So satisfying the senses, the actual physical senses, versus the feeling of having those senses satisfied. And that's something that is processed through your mind uh, with different chemicals being expressed, and adrenaline, dopamine, all that kind of stuff, going through when you think about that kind of thing, about satisfying your senses. So the lust of the flesh is identified as the desire to satisfy the longings of the senses and emotions that feeling that we get when we think about it. This is accomplished through whatever means necessary, regardless of the hideousness of the means. Okay, now that should furrow some eyebrows, and it did, good. <laughs> we, introduced, we introduced the concept last week, we didn't talk about it because we weren't dealing with that part of this in nature, but that you are either a rebel, or you are either, you're either a rebel or a do-gooder. One who wants to be a people pleaser, wants to do things that are satisfying to other people or pleasant to other people, or one that you don't care what other people think, you're going to do what you want to do regardless. If you are one that doesn't care, you're not going to, you will actually do things that are would be more hideous than the one perhaps who would be a do-gooder. At least what we would consider public hideous. Okay. So what I'm trying to get at here is that when I say this is accomplished through whatever means necessary, the do-gooder will use means that are a little more pleasant. He'll still do the act or still think or whatever, satisfy his senses, but he'll do it through a pleasant sense. 
most of this will be private in, in nature. Um, he doesn't want other people to see it because it now changes their view whether he's a people pleaser. Now the rebel, um, he doesn't care. He's just going to do it. And that's usually where you see a little more of the hideous side of these kind of sin nature concepts. Go ahead. So that, like we talked about last week, that idea of they're the same. Is that under the lust of the flesh, but how is that satisfying the senses if you're wanting to make other people happy without satisfying the senses? It's not so much about benefiting them, but you're wanting them to be happy with you so that they're not disappointed with your actions or your behavior. So what sense is that satisfying? This is not a part of the lust part. Okay. There's two parts to this in nature, basically. We dealt with the lust pattern last week. There's also a trend towards either doing good or doing bad. Okay. You remember that part? Yeah. So we've got two different things there. So it, that's what I was asking. So it has more to do with whether you're like the do-gooder. The rebel or the people leader. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Just with that statement of this will be more hideous, or this regards to the hideousness of the means, that was what led me to this little rabbit trail to remind us that we still have other options out there. doesn't mean that all lust of the flesh will be hideous in their actions. It just means that they're, that's a part of their sin nature that they have to take care of. And if they're do-gooder, they'll be a little more pleasant towards it. If they're a rebel, they won't care whether they're pleasant or displeasant. That'll happen with any of those three, mm -hmm. whether it's the lust or the flesh. Yeah. What verse do they three yeah. come out of? Yeah, First John 2.16. Do you don't use Genesis for those at all? Not with this part of the study. It's an interesting point. Is it when you bring up Genesis, and you look at when Eve was deceived by Satan, she was deceived in these three areas as well. Is that it looked good for for food? Um, it seemed pleasant to the taste. I believe was part of it too. I forget the actual verse right now, but it was it was good for knowledge, good for food, and then looked good to the eyes. And that there's your three, and it's an exact um, caricature, if you will, of the same temptations we have of Jesus, which we're going to get to in just a little bit, and the same lust pattern. So these are these three areas, uh, which is amazing because Genesis 3.6? Yeah. If you want to read about it, it's in Genesis 3.6. It's amazing because Eve didn't have a sin nature, neither did Jesus. And when we get to the part where we're talking about Jesus, I'm going to remind you of this again, but she was tempted in these three areas and deceived in these three areas by Satan. And Jesus was tempted in these three areas. Now, he wasn't deceived. Uh, gratefully so. So it, it's definitely interesting parallels um, to, to draw. Question? No. When you see parallels, it means you probably are more likely you're interpreting it correctly. <laughs> There's the harmony. You have in all those. There's harmony with God's word. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah, it's not something that just came up with that right. one verse. <laughs> right. No, no, the more parallels you see, the more, yeah. the more support you have, and it's probably the more important it is. Okay, lust of the eyes is A, a desire to possess physical matter, and B, a desire to consume physical matter. Okay, when I'm talking about consume, I don't mean eat it, okay? I mean to acquire and then use, uh, resource-wise. The lust of the eyes is identified as a desire to possess and or consume physical objects. This is accomplished through identification of a desirable object and an illogical or obsessive progression towards its possession. This would be equivalent also to and include worshiping an object, such as you got a new toy coming out, new gadget coming out you want, that kind of thing, that now everything you're doing is thinking about this and how you're going to get it, and you've got to have it. And when you get it, it's great and you love it, but it really there's no benefit whatsoever. Now, the value 
of an object, whether it has value or doesn't have value, you don't care if you're lust of the eyes. Because your, your goal is to satisfy your desire to possess it or consume it, and it's accomplished through identifying what that, what that object is, regardless of whether it has any value or not. Um, so, you want it, you want it. so it's not so much you want it so that the value does this for you, or like, hey, I want a Ferrari so that people think of me well. Well, that would be pride, not lust of the eyes. This is regardless of the value found within the object. Actually, to better say that, it would be more that you want the object because it has value, because of its characteristics itself, not for what it can do for you. Does that make sense? Or for your at your ego. So would gluttony, would gluttony be a lust of the eyes or a lust of the flesh? Because I can see it's satisfying <coughs> your emotions. Like it seems like you can make an argument, but I'm more asking. Gluttony would typically become the um, satisfaction of the senses, okay. either through the tasting part. Um, or through that kind of feeling of needing a comfort and that comfort driving your desire to be satisfied in that way. Like a comfort blanket would be a similar concept so for this age. Gluttony that would be lust of the eyes would be like... Stored stuff. You want a specific food or a specific, like the best brand of tea or toast that's just perfectly done and that type of a gluttony that's more based on... Not the taste, but you want it for that because it's the best type, or you know, that like the specific brand. Yeah, in that sense, is it could be, well, that could be all three of them. And there's a lot, of, there's a lot of correlation in this too, okay. as far as because remember, it's it's a degree, it's a blend. You've got you've got all three of these these lust patterns, but one's more dominant. Gluttony in the sense of lust of the eyes would be more towards stuff rather than food, but food is stuff, so it fits that category and so it overlaps in some yeah, senses. Yeah. Okay, the third one, the pride of life, is a desire to boost one's own ego and a desire to boast about oneself. Now, the way that this is satisfied is through either internal or external prioritization, meaning that internally you think of yourself better um, than others, you view yourself in a certain way, um, or externally you promote yourself more so than others, or you promote your desires more so than others. Um, the satisfaction of the pride of the life lust pattern is accomplished through either internal or external prioritization of oneself with regard to others as secondary in value, behavior, demeanor, or intellect. I'm smarter and I know it. I'm better looking and I know it. I have better behavior and I know it. And everyone else is going to do too. Okay, that's, that's your concept of the pride of life with that ego concept. Whether it's the thought internal that no one ever sees because you're a do-gooder, or whether you're a rebel and you don't care, and so you externally display it, it doesn't really matter. It's either way, pride of life. Again, each of these three areas will be present at some point in an individual's sin life. Um, however, through self-inventory behavior, an individual is able to identify his dominant lust pattern as one of the following, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, or pride of life. Last week I said that if you look at your behavior, you'll be able to find out which category you fit into. Um, hopefully you did that for your own sake so that you know where you're going to be tempted because that's where we're going to get at here. Is our testing goes into our sin nature, our lust pattern. What we lust for, what we desire to satisfy is where Satan and company hit us. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus didn't have a sin nature. So what I'm saying with that is that because Jesus wasn't born of a sin nature, 
he bypassed that through the through the virgin birth. If we're not born of a virgin birth, we're going to have a sin nature. It's passed down through the seed of man. We established that last week um, through a number of different verses. I've got an inquiry into Utah's genetics, Utah University's genetics lab right now to find out what I can figure out about the Y chromosome because I I solicited to you guys last week that I would I would, wouldn't dogmatically say or teach that the Y chromosome of the male is where the sin nature is passed through, but I did say that it makes logical sense. I've got two other sources that agree with me, having gone through studies and talked to um, them in these kind of situations. But I'm looking right now for a geneticist outside of the Christian realm to kind of give us some sort of information about what is within the Y chromosome. And obviously they're not going to come back and say, oh, this in nature. Yeah, no, but, but we can find out some more information about it and see if there's something that kind of lends a little bit of evidence to that or not. We may find something that disproves it. So again, that's not what I'm saying the Bible teaches, but it makes sense if it's passed down to the seed of male and we've got that lack of a Y chromosome from a male going into the egg of Mary, it makes sense. Um, now there's obviously other factors within geneticism that could also be a part of that. Um, but it's an interesting thing to look at. So if I hear anything, I will let you know. No way to test that. Unless we have to use this DNA? No. Which we don't. Right, we don't and we won't. Yeah. <laughs> okay. In so much as Jesus did not have a sin nature, <clears throat> he therefore did not possess a dominant lust pattern. If you don't have a sin nature and the lust pattern is a part of that, you can't have a lust pattern if you don't have a sin nature. Makes sense. And he didn't have a dominant one because he didn't have a, any lust pattern whatsoever. No sin nature, no lust pattern, no dominant one. And yet scripture teaches we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. That's Hebrews 4.15. We have a Savior, a Messiah, one who is our high priest, who has gone before God and presented the sacrifice and has been accepted. And he was identified as being tempted in all things. Now, number one, uh, there's a little superscript up there. Tempted is the perfect participle form of parazo, which is the same word that we are looking at um, in James chapter 1. Forgive the spelling error. So the word we're talking about, about tempting, about trial, about testing, about um, this evaluation process, that's the same word that we have here applied to Jesus, is that he was parazoed. Number two, all things is from ponti, which in this context, as a substantive adjective, refers to an overall category rather than each individual object within the category. Okay, now different context, ponti will mean the individual aspect, but as a substantive adjective, ponti refers to the overall category. So last week we had hekostos, which referred to the each individual within a group. This is the group rather than the each individual. This is all. Um, it all things that word things actually is been put in there to help kind of smooth along the substantive concept. And we need mean that we need a subject to identify what's going on here. Um, but really, if you wanted to read the verse, you would come out with one who has been tempted in all as we are yet without sin. So things isn't in there, but the concept is that in all ways or all things or in reference to just things that we are. <clears throat> We should then find some sort of evidence that Jesus was tempted in the same ways that we are. Um, Mark Driscoll, bless his spirit, not his soul, bless his spirit, in 2006 came out and said that Jesus was certainly tempted by women. He certainly wanted to feel the comfort of women. He certainly didn't like waking up alone. 
And he had a whole sermon about all these things about Jesus, wanting to feel a woman, wanting to be with a woman, and, and with all these women adoring him, must have had some sort of desire for one. Okay, he uses this verse to say that, of course, Jesus did, because he was tempted in every single way that we are. Well, that means that he's tempted to do all the things that we identify as illicit and immoral acts, and then God does. That doesn't work. Okay, he didn't have any desire on his own for those parts. He didn't have a sin nature. I don't bring that up to slam Mark Driscoll, if I know he's going through a tough time right now, but it was something I came across in the study for this. Mark Driscoll is, I believe, Mars Hill over in Seattle. Yeah, he's got a large super church. Uh, they're going through some issues with having disciplined a person uh, in church discipline style and just some internal struggles. So they need our prayer and support. Um, they also need guidance into truth as far as some of these things go, uh, along with the 5,000 members of that church that are being taught this material. <clears throat> so it's not that he was tempted in every single variation of temptation that we can possess. The temptation that he was um, given can be found in Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Mark 1, 12 through 13, and Luke 4, 1 through 13. Now these are the three of the Gospels that reference or explain the temptations of Jesus with Matthew 4, 1 through 11, uh, giving a full account. We only get partial account um, in Mark 1, 12 through 13 with it with Jesus, or the, the verse says that um, Jesus was tempted by Satan, and then it says angels attended to him, and we don't get though how the temptations occurred or what they did, uh, what they were. But Luke 4, 1, 13 gives us also a full account, and it matches and harmonizes with Matthew 4, 1 through 11, and it gives us a different angle of Jesus himself as a person. So during his time on life, Jesus was tested by Satan himself in each of the lust categories found within the world. I'll give you a chance to write that down if you are. What do you think about the thought that... Um, I don't like it. <laughs> when Jesus died on the cross and took on all of our sin, would he have experienced the full temptation of everything that we went through at that point? You mean like the life passing before your eyes concept? Or? I guess whatever that time period was where the Father turned his back on him and he experienced the weight of our sin... I believe the weight of our sin was more that he was separated from God, and that was the drastic weight. But I don't believe that he experienced the temptations, any temptation through that time period. He was already forsaken by God, so he was being judged by yeah, but with I mean, sin. When he was taking all of that on, all of our sin that came out of temptation, I guess it would be. Would that not be something? I guess I. I'm picturing it more of a flashing before your eyes kind of thing where it's instantaneous. And obviously, the minute that the sin was imputed to him, that separation from his father happened. Um, I just wondered if that was what your thoughts were on that. Sounds like you're doing like a download concept, and I'm just trying to put your words back in my head. Yeah. Is that Jesus was on the cross, the father turned his back, and now our sin was being downloaded to Jesus, no, and it was streaming it was kind of like a thing? <laughs> Because I don't think God is bound by time. I speak God, I don't think God's bound by time like we are, so I don't think it was a, I think it was an instantaneous thing. But it was a complete and full experience for Jesus. 
and yet to be tempted is not to sin, like the Bible says, be right. tempted and yet do not sin. So right. he would have experienced the the punishment for the sin without necessarily like that that doesn't necessarily mean he would experience that. Well remember that it doesn't mean that he sinned and did all the actions of our sin. What right, it means is that is our sin was imputed to him. We're written down in God's book that we that he had done it instead of us. So the temptations that he endured in those accounts, food. We're gonna get through in just a second too. But. Those are the three categories. Once that was done, Satan. Satan walked away. You don't see Satan tempting Jesus again. What do you, who do you have tempting Jesus? Or testing Jesus? You've got the Pharisees. You've got different people. Now, Satan may have been using them to do so. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I guess but, the question comes back, how, he, how was he tempted in all things as we are? Oh, that's what we're finding out. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, come back again next week. Oh. I will. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so remember from the slide before, just to get us back onto our thought process, that all things isn't each and everything, in the sense that we'd be tempted to rob a bank, so Jesus was. They didn't have, well, they had a bank, but, uh, or that we'd be tempted to steal an iPhone. Well, Jesus didn't have an iPhone to steal, right? I mean, just, it's not possible, okay? It's not every single variation of temptation. It's every way of temptation, and what, how are we tempted? We're tempted in three areas, lust, the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. So, to answer your question, I think we just did, is that it's not in every way, every variation, it's in every category of temptation that he was tempted. Temptation number one from Matthew 4.3, and I just chose all the Matthew ones, um, not because Luke is any lesser than Matthew, they're harmonizing together, they tell the same story, showing a different approach to the character of Jesus and the role he would play. Uh, but here, Satan says... In his test that you are hungry, so command the stone to become bread. And the targeted area here is the lust of the flesh, specifically taste. Jesus had been in the wilderness for 40 days, being led around by the Holy Spirit, being tested and tempted by Satan. And you have this lust of the flesh targeted area here that it says specifically he had not eaten. And then this verse comes in and Satan says, hey, you must be hungry. Command the stone to be bread. So the lust of the flesh here, the taste uh, satisfaction of that desire for food was what was targeted and Jesus' response was a biblical truth that man does not live by bread alone but upon every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Now, you should start seeing a pattern here with the test, the target area, and the response. All these three things are things that we need to keep in mind for when we are tested because we will be tested in different areas and we will need to have a response to that test. Number two of the temptations of Jesus, the test was to throw yourself down. Satan took him to the top. I'm going to call it a building. You can call it a temple if you want. Took him to the top of the temple, took him to the top of the building, and said, hey, the Bible says, he's getting a little smarter, he uses scripture now. The Bible says that God will not let you be hurt. He will not let your foot be, cast, or be dashed upon a stone. He will send angels regarding you to take care of you. So throw yourself down. And see what God, whether God will keep his word or not. There's a little bit of Greek in there, in case your Bible doesn't read the same way. Um, so the area of test here is pride of life, specifically independent operation and decision making. Okay, When we operate independent of God and make decisions for ourselves versus letting God decide those decisions or operating within the relationship structure that God has created, we're being prideful. It's not our job to do that. 
It's not our job to operate independent. It's not our job to make decisions for ourselves outside the decisions that God has hold us, held us responsible for. Jesus here had every ability to throw himself down and know that God was going to take care of him. But that wasn't God's plan for him. Much less the egotistical concept that, oh yeah, I'm the Messiah, I can do whatever I want and throw myself down. That is totally linked to pride. So Jesus' response here, biblical truth, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It's not for us to test God. Now this word, you have it right there. Yeah, Matthew 4, 5. I was going to say it's not parazo, and I don't believe it is. I just want to make sure before I get there, because I looked at this already once, and I forget. Okay, this word is ek parazo, which is from parazo, but it's a compound word. So it's not just a, a different form. It's a compound word meaning that you've got two words combined together to change the meaning. This means to call out, to, to challenge in that sense. It's not testing to see the character. This is calling out saying, hey, you said you're going to do this. I'm going to see whether you're going to do it or not. It's a calling out of God. We're told not to do that in other places in Scripture. Um, and the compound word makes a huge difference there. Uh, we'll see another compound word coming up in a little bit here. Um, but you can't just say, oh, it's per got parizo in it, so it means to do the same thing as parizo. No, it's ek parizo. It's a different word entirely. It has a different meaning because of that compound word. Okay, so temptation number three, Matthew 4, 8. Test was all the kingdoms of the world I will give you, is what Satan said. And the area of test was less of the eyes. He said, look out as far as you can see. I will give you all this and all the kingdoms of the world if you will do what? Bow down and worship me. Jesus' response is that biblical truth is worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan appealed to the lust of the eyes, the concept that you can see all of this beauty, you can see all of this stuff, and it will be yours. You will own it all. It will be all yours. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that because I'm supposed to worship the Lord my God and serve him only. Now, notice the concept here is that Satan said, worship me. Jesus gives worship and serve back to him. Part of our job is to serve God, right? I mean, that's our whole, whole job if you come down to it. Not just to worship Him, but also to serve Him. Now, we serve through worship and we worship through serve. It's kind of reciprocal through those concepts. But Jesus hits on something here when He uses that word serve, is that it's not our job to, use, to serve ourselves or to serve others, even someone who's going to give you a bunch of stuff. So you've got these three temptations, and you've got three biblical truth responses. Now, what we don't know about Jesus is that time period when? After about 12, 13, till he hits about 30. Okay, we don't know what happens there. We call them the silent years because there's nothing in the Bible about them. But what we can see through these biblical truths is that he was learning the Word of God. He was studying. He knew academic knowledge. Now, it wasn't just his because he was omniscient. Remember, he laid that aside. So now he was bound to learning, bound to the human mind rather than the, the infinite mind of God. So he learned through those time, through that time period, and I'm assuming partly through the time period he was growing up that we have in Scripture, but for, in those silent years, we know that he learned these biblical truths. And now what's he doing? Through his choice, he is saying, I'm not going to go for that. I'm going to depend upon the truth that I'm to worship God and God alone. So we have to work, we have to learn these things. Just the same way that Jesus did. We have to study it. We have to understand it. We have to be taught it. We have to prove it. We have to test it. 
All these things, we have to rightly handle the Word of God so that we know what truth is and what truth isn't, and how to depend upon, what to depend upon and what not to. That's what Jesus did during those silent years. It's evident clearly through not just this passage, but through other passages, um, if you harmonize Scripture as well. <coughs> so, again, I stress the importance of we need to know what the Word of God says. Not an interpretation of the Word of God. We need to know what the Word of God says, which is why we go through original language here. So you can see what it says. I can tell you all I want what it says. But if you see what it says, it'll make more difference than me going up here and saying, no, that's not what the English says, that, but that's not what it actually means. I want you guys to see it so that you can say, yeah, that is what it says. Or no, that's not what it says. Because you're responsible for you and what you learn. Each of these three temptations by Satan was targeted towards a specific lust pattern. Since Jesus had no lust pattern innate to him, there was no dominant lust pattern for Satan to attack. We mentioned this with Eve. She didn't have a dominant lust pattern. She didn't have a lust pattern at all either. Remember, she was created trichotomous. She didn't have a sin nature within her. Somehow, with the eating that fruit, their genetic structure changed. We know death occurred, but through offspring, now we have the genetic sin nature concept. So, prior to the fall, if they had had offspring, would they have had a sin nature? Indication of scripture is no. And maybe that's why the X chromosome and the Y chromosome on the male has one little leg cut off of it. I don't know. Maybe we won't know what it is because it's a Y chromosome instead of an X one. It doesn't have that little allele hanging off. Or maybe it's all theological hogwash anyway. <laughs> so in all lust patterns, Satan attempted to entice Jesus to sin, yet he was without success. For which we are grateful at this time because otherwise we would have no Messiah. Eve was tempted in the same way. She failed. Okay, She had all three of those. And if you look at the account of scripture, she failed in every one of them. <laughs> is that she saw it was good for the, good to eat. She saw or good to the eyes. She saw that it was good to um, have, and she wanted the knowledge of it. You, you can see those three, and that's a terrible paraphrase, but you can look it up. You know what I'm talking about. So what made her fail? Just the ability that she had, or the, she had free will. That's she. <clears throat> well, you get to the point of whether or not she knew she was sinning or not because she had free will, and. Because she had free will, and because the Bible says she was deceived, I believe that she believed she was doing the right thing. Or the conscience was satiated by what she was doing, in what she was doing. Because she didn't have, and we had the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not, it's not this concept that now you know right from wrong. It's this, now, now you have a conscience that's activated, that has this program that has right, has wrong, that you can learn and adapt. <coughs> so... Her volition is the agent under which she fell. And that's good because we're going to use that kind of same terminology in the future here. But the Bible attributes it to deception. So somehow she thought she was doing something which wasn't wrong. And if you don't have a conscience, I'm not sure you know how to judge what's right or wrong. But I don't Wasn't know. Was she not taught in the garden before that? Just in a plant like Jesus did? Uh, there's thought that way. Um he had told them not. He, oh, he clearly okay. told them not to. So she would have recalled that or something. She just wasn't paying attention. She just wasn't good or evil at that point. That's what, <clears throat> she doesn't know good or evil. She has only known what has been good. <clears throat> well, she doesn't even know what's good. She just knows what God says. I mean, she only knows what life She only is. knows what, in, <laughs> what, <laughs> what information is presented to her. Right. Now, she's got contradictory information, but if you don't have a conscience, you don't know necessarily that there's a right and a wrong to some degree, too. So maybe she thought it was new information that God hadn't given her that had changed or something like that. We don't know. That's part of the question that we will always have. Um, now, I haven't studied the, the Hebrew of Genesis. I know there are others that have. 
Um, and that there are others that say that she just had a brain lapse or whatever um, and just didn't think about it. Um, but I have a hard time seeing that because then God would hold her responsible for it, for knowing what was right. Um, now, again, I haven't studied it. My first lean is that if she knew what she was doing was wrong and ate, that's sin. How does that fit within Lucifer falling? Because angels and humans don't have the same obedience sin concept. Because remember, sin is disconformity to God's plan, missing the mark of God's plan. But with angels, you've got obedience or disobedience. And it's obey. If you disobey, then you are back to the point of going before the high court of God and saying, are you going to obey or disobey? What is your choice? And when you say disobey, then it's a rebellious problem. So there is actually evidence, I forget where it was, but there's evidence of other angels disobeying God, but there's this process, not of confession necessarily, but where they are brought back into obedience to God through some sort of, not punishment, but process. To be reinstated. Right. And uh, third dinner. Well, and, and where, where Lucifer was lifted up in pride and said, no, I will not be reinstated. I will make myself like the most high. And then he convinced through his wiles to take a third with him. Um, it, it boggles my mind that Eve was not the one responsible for sin. It, well, it boggles my mind. What was the first sin? Was it eating the fruit or was it her exaggerating and lying when she said that God said we can't even touch it? <laughs> or was it prior to that with the serpent even being able to talk to Eve without Adam protecting her? I think if God was going to hold us responsible for understanding all this, he probably would have given us all the details. <laughs> if he was what? going to hold us responsible for understanding all you know, this, he probably would have given us all the details. Well, the Bible's thick enough as it is. <laughs> for some <laughs> reason, <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> the silent years, for some reason, God blames Adam and credits him with the first sin. It may be because of the headship of the male over the female, which I think is a high, very likely candidacy. Um, and maybe because he's responsible to protect her and the garden, and that in not protecting her, or in the serpent getting there and deceiving her, that he failed. Um, well, if you go after all the sorts of things, part where she wasn't really responsible for it, Adam wasn't deceived, so he directly disobeyed. Versus if she was deceived, if you're going with your line of thought. <laughs> yeah, he did. She just fell into so who would be responsible in your line of thought? Would yep. be that's why Adam would be responsible. <laughs> yeah. Well. <Yeah. clears throat> And you've got the other thing of indication of Scripture, and this is why I don't believe that sin entered the world before Eve ate, because it says that she gave him the fruit, and when he ate with her, they were both their eyes were open, they both knew they were naked. That's when the sin process happened. So <clears throat> it comes down to Adam's disobedience rather than Eve's, de Eve's deception, or even prior to that, Adam's failure to protect her. We know it has to come down to the, the point of Adam. <clears throat> Either way, they didn't possess the lust pattern. Until that point in which I believe that genetically the fruit changed their genetics so that it now, with the death of the spirit, when they passed down their genetics, it went through a process that now produces dichotomous human. So prior to that, I believe scripture would indicate, um, and this is a study that, uh, again, you'll have to do or we'll get to at some point after we are raptured, that, <clears throat> that prior to the sin, sin or fall of humanity, that they would have produced sinless or non-sin-natured humans if they all had offspring. But they didn't because they didn't get that far. Why not? Because God commanded them to take her to the garden and be fruitful and multiply. So either Satan was real quick in this whole thing, when the whole deception process and the, the fall of man, or they just didn't live out that command either. Well, we don't really know. <clears throat> There's no real timeline for that. 
So, <clears throat> unless an individual has been born of a virgin birth, which none of us have, that means then that you have a, and possess a lust pattern, a dominant one. God knows it, Satan and company know it, and now you know it. It's under your specific lust pattern that you will be attacked primarily by Satan and company and also by yourself. Two things there, the word primarily. And the second thing is because the sin nature is a part of you, you attack yourself. This isn't a tug of war where you've got a hand out on each side and God's pulling one hand and Satan's pulling the other. No, this is you and Satan pulling against God if you want to go with a tug of war analogy. You yourself on your own will operate in a manner which is sinful. Because you yourself on your own was not how you were designed to operate. It is not the plan, therefore it's missed the mark. <clears throat> you will have to fight yourself as well as Satan and company. <clears throat> I'm convinced that probably 85 to 90% of the temptation or struggle we feel is merely within ourselves. Satan and company set the trap, the bait is there, we go for it, and then we battle ourselves the whole way with, while we're being dragged out by what we want. Um, and well, that'll make a little more sense as we get going. Or as we continue on, we've already gotten going 22 slides through. So you fight against yourself, you fight against Satan and company, and it's in this specific lust pattern that you will primarily have to fight. Now what I mean by primarily is that there are other two other lust patterns here that you will have to fight against at some point in your life. That you have to fight against probably at the same time you're fighting against the other one. But there is that one that's dominant. Take your pain on the degree and make up your sin nature, which again is genetic, so you can look at your parents, and see their sin natures, and then say, hey, yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to do a recessive um, dominate trait chart. <laughs> if we can figure that out, we're set. So <laughs> it, it'd be great. It'd be great to be able to predict who's coming out and whether or not they're going to be like a, sin, a, a lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, well, or whatever, you know? Yeah, the problem is we don't know which one's recessive and which one's dominant. I mean, we'd have to have so much information. We'd have to count like, like everyone in the world or a good number of them to be able to see the pattern of which one is which, you know? So, and again, the geneticists, are, they're not on this concept yet. So who knows? Hopefully someday they get there and maybe we'll, maybe we'll have to all go to genetics class and figure this out so we can identify recessive and dominant traits. You in, Thomas? <laughs> wonder if Multnomah teaches that. All right. <clears throat> All right, so that was our review, <laughs> which is good because we got some people that have, weren't here last week. So knowing that our primary attack will be placed in our vulnerable position, remember you've got a castle, you're a castle, and your gate is the most vulnerable part, okay? You're recording? Yeah. Question? No. Okay. Um, then we know where the attack will be placed. It's coming for that front gate. It's coming for your dominant lust pattern. It's going to go to where you're vulnerable. So James changes his focus on the where to now the how the individual is tested. Um, James 1.14 says, But each one is tested under his own lust, carried away and enticed. Now it should sound a little different than your Bibles. Okay, Last week we did 14.1a and c, which is that first phrase, but each one is tested under his own lust. Carried away and enticed is split in the middle, Split those two apart in the middle, and that's your B. So you got A, B, and C. But each one is tested when he is carried away and enticed under his own lust. That's the New American Standard almost translation. <clears throat> in the Greek, the order is different. It's, it's literally in this order. But each one is tested under his own lust, carried away and enticed. Now that little last phrase is what we're looking at tonight. And it gives the concept that when you're being tested by, under your own lust, that that's when you're being carried away, that's when you're being enticed. Okay, so that's where we're going. 
James uses two present participles to identify the process of how the individual is tested. He's tested under his sin nature, under his lust pattern. This is how. Now, because they are present participles, we are able to understand that their actions occur simultaneously to the action of the main verb, test, parazo. So each man is tested, parazoed, and at the same time that he's tested, he is carried away and enticed. Those are simultaneous. When one's occurring, the other's occurring. And the other's occurring. Okay? All three are occurring at the same time. The Greek language declares such to be the case through the use of the present participle uh, in conjunction with the main verb, parazo. The first participle, exalkamenos, is a compound word, keywords right there, which means to be dragged out by force. It says a compound word, it's, it comes from the word ex, meaning out of, which is where we get exit, for the record. So every time you're up in church and you look out and you see an exit sign, think ex, out of. And elko, meaning to drag by force. So you put those two together and you get to be dragged, or to drag out by force. That's where the passive voice gets in there? Uh, we're getting to the passive voice with that be dragged part. So, exel kamenos is a compound word which means to be dragged out by force, coming from ex and elko, meaning out of and to drag out, or to drag by force. So it's to drag out by force. To drag out by force includes the idea that there is some sort of resistance. Okay, now focus on this real quick because you might get confused with the next couple of slides. That resistance is either active resistance or passive resistance. In other words, you've got the active, the tug of war concept, where someone is attempting to drag you out and you are fighting them dragging you. You're pulling back on the rope, if you will. Then you've got the passive concept, which I call the dead body concept, is that you are laying there limp and they are just dragging you out. There's no resistance on your end, except for the weight of your body. Okay? So there's either passive resistance or active resistance. But that word to drag out by force includes, in its definition, the idea that there is some sort of resistance, either active resistance or passive resistance. Okay, now don't get that confused with the passive voice of the participle. Okay. Exile Kamenos is a passive participle whose subject is the individual being tested. Each one is the subject. So we're looking at an individual who's being tested but now, with the passive voice of the participle, he is not performing, nor is he participating in the action of being tested. He's not testing, and he's not participating in the action of being tested. He is actually being dragged out by something or someone. Excuse me, I said tested. Apply all dragged out to all those. So, the individual tested is not performing the action to drag out, nor is he performing the action to participate in dragging out. Okay? He is being dragged out by something or someone else. This again says nothing about his resistance to being dragged, whether it's active or passive. But the participle as a passive participle is applied to the subject. So each one, that individual that is being tested, is being dragged out by something else. He's not doing the dragging, he's not participating in the dragging of himself. We get that from the passive voice, number three, where it identifies that the subject is acted upon by the action. And when you identify that through XL Kamenos, you get someone is being acted upon by something to be dragged out by force. So we've got this place that he's being dragged out of by something else. We don't know if he's fighting it. We don't know if he's just going with it. XL <clears throat> Kamenos is a passive participle whose subject is the individual being tested. Therefore, the individual being tested is not performing 
nor participate in the action of being dragged out. Rather, he is being dragged out by something or someone else. This appears to be a duplicate slide. Okay, apparently we need to hear it again. <laughs> Your specific lust pattern is the agent under which you are dragged out. So just like the agent under which Eve ate the fruit was her volition, that was what she used to eat the fruit. She had a free will to reach out, grab that fruit, and eat it. That's the agent under which she ate the fruit. Your lust pattern is the agent under which you are dragged out. We spend the majority of our time understanding this concept of moving from under something or being under something or being dragged out under something uh, in the rest of this <coughs> study tonight. Your lust pattern is a part of your sin nature. It is within you, and it can be dragged out of you given the right bait. <coughs> the Apostle Paul agrees. He himself writes, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. That's Romans 7.15. We're going to go through a few of those verses real quick. Romans 7.16-17, Paul continuing on says, But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. That's an interesting thing to think about. How does that work? For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh, the body and the soul together, for the willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. And then Romans 7.20, he finishes off saying, But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. You see the struggle he's got with himself here. As he's got in this flesh, this thing that is doing something he doesn't want to do, that he set his mind and said, I'm not going to do this. So you've got almost a split personality here. Where Paul himself is saying, I'm not going to do this, and yet his body is dragging out this process within him. <clears throat> Paul identifies the source of his sin is in his flesh. In, or in Romans 7.15, he uses the word katergodzomai, one of my all-time favorites in Koine Greek, um, just because it's, it's epically awesome. And he uses it to identify that the thing he doesn't want to do, which is sin, works its way from the inside of him to the outside. That's what that word katergazai means. To work, something which works from the inside of you to the outside. Or inside to the outside. It doesn't have to be you. Paul couples this with hehamartia in verse 20 to identify that the sin to identify the sin dwells within him. Um, apparently there's a couple of issues there. There we go. That's a little better. So, ha, ha, or he hamartia is, literally means the sin. <clears throat> if we had something like the sin of this, or the sin he committed, something that indicated that this was a specific sin, we would know it's talking about a specific sin. But when this term he hamartia is used, it's a reference to the sin nature. When we have nothing specific there, it's... Um, and literally, I guess I didn't give you the little transla literal translation of that. But he's identifying that this, this thing which produces sin from within him is this thing called the sin. And he's referencing his sin nature, that which is within him, that dwells within him. Um, there's a part of his body his, and his soul coupled together. 
Hey, hamartia katergadzimai's sin from inside to the outside, inside of the individual to the outside. I'm not sure what that, what this slide is doing here, but we're going to make it work. Now that phrase again, ha hey martia katergadzimai, is the sin nature works its way from inside the individual to the outside, and because it does that, it produces sin within the life of the, of the individual. We've got the sin nature in us. When that's brought out to the outside, produces sin. We see the effect of the sin nature. It's under this principle that the one being tested is dragged out. That we've got this sin nature. Satan and company knows it, we know it. We're dragged out by that, underneath that concept. Keep hanging on, we'll make it, we'll make, it make sense in a little bit. The second part, present participle, daily odds of menos, means baited. It's derived from the verb form of the noun, daily air, which means bait. So we're going fishing, we need some power daily air. Daily air. Okay, we need some bait. What do you do with bait? You put it on the hook to bait the fish. Now, does the bait like power bait? We hope so. But if the bait doesn't bite, what do we do? We switch out for a lure or something else that the, the fish is going to go for, right? So, <clears throat> the bait is daily air. The verb form would be to bait, daily odzo. But the participle we have here means baited. It's an adjectival form of the, the participle. It's an adjectival participle rather than a verbal participle. So it's referencing, it's describing something as being something rather than describing it by an action. <clears throat> so it means baited, and it's identifying that the, the individual being tested is drawn away or drawn out, dragged out forcibly, and baited. Now, being passive, just like we had with um, Echel. Komenos, we have this concept that the baiting of the individual is done by someone else. He's not baiting himself. He's not participating in baiting himself. He is baited by something else. <clears throat> this incorporates the idea of something which appeals to the individual, which is used to drag out the individual from his experiential position in Christ to experiential death in sin. There's that word experiential, right? We're not talking salvation here, we're talking about fellowship. Are you experientially alive in Christ, or are you experientially dead in your sin, in your trespass? <clears throat> Positionally, you're alive in Christ, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You sin after that point, you're still alive in Christ. Experientially, we change that. The concept is that when you are in your experience, your position is either in fellowship with God or out of fellowship with God. If you're out of fellowship with God, you're not operating within the spiritual zoe's life that God has created you to operate within. <clears throat> you're operating within this concept of death or thanatos. The same type of situation you would be in if you were not saved, except that the difference here is that your action isn't recorded as sin, it's recorded as something which is worthless. And the sin that you commit, that is charged to Christ and recorded down as, having hit, as him having committed it because God sees in you his very righteousness. There's a bunch of studies within that whole concept. Okay. <clears throat> For now, you need to understand that position... And positional truth is that you, if you are saved, you are in Christ, you cannot be taken out of Christ. Experiential truth is that in your experiences, you are either um, operating in fellowship with God or out of fellowship with God. When you're out of fellowship with God, you operate in death. And when you're in fellowship with God, you operate in life. Any questions on that? Okay. I feel like I don't understand it, so I can do better to move on. Okay. Yeah, and again, it's a couple of different studies. We need to study positional truth and we need to study experiential truth and in those billions of years of studies we can finally understand what's going on here. 
So yeah. come Lord, come Lord Jesus, <laughs> come, come. Yes, precisely. Face to face. So then, <clears throat> the individual being tested under his his specific lust pattern is dragged out by force and baited by someone or something else. Now James just got done saying in verse thirteen that God isn't the one who baits us. He is not the or God, God's not the source of testing. Therefore, neither is he the dragger or the baiter. Okay, if he doesn't test us. He's not the one that drags us, and he's not the one that baits us. That would be inconsistent with the character of God and with the word of God. <clears throat> God is not the source of testing, nor is he the dragger or the baiter. Side note number one. You thought all this was a side note. I know. No, no. Side study number one and side note. Yeah, and then we did tonight, we did review of side study number one, and then we went into part three of trial versus temptation. Side note are... Oh no, we're out of the side study for now. We've applied the side study to our trial and temptation, trial versus temptation part three. <laughs> okay, so here's our brief side note. A brief note about the preposition under. It's from the corresponding Greek preposition hupa, not hupo. I know it looks like hupo, it's hupa. You're still gonna say hupo in your head, I get it. It's fine with me. It's just wrong. Okay, hupa. I have to fight it too. Within the syntactical and grammatical construction of this verse in verse 14. Hupa identifies that the lust pattern is not the someone or something which drags or baits, but rather the agent under which the dragging or baiting occurs. <clears throat> I'm going to stick with the example I've already created rather than create a new one. Um, the lust pattern is the agent under which the, the dragging and the baiting occurs. It is not the dragger or the baiter. The Greek emphatic order, <clears throat> remember the Greek in the sentence it places more things with more emphasis in the front so it preloads them kind of but each one is tempted under his own lust being dragged out by force and baited the use of hoopah identifies that it is under the lust pattern of the individual that one is tested that lust pattern specific to each individual is the agent again which is the individual is the agent under which the individual is being tested it's not the tester it's not the one dragging it's not the one baiting it's the location, if you will, under which the believer is being tested. He's not being tested above it, it's being tested underneath it. If he was above it, it wouldn't have any authority over him. But the, <clears throat> this concept of being under something creates that authority concept. Like, you're under my authority right now, because you can get up and go volitionally if you want, but right now, for some reason, you've all submitted to this kind of concept. I don't know why you keep coming back. <clears throat> but the lust pattern, specific to each individual, is the agent under which the individual is tested. It is not the actor which tests, drags, or baits the individual. It's under that that the individual is tested, dragged, and baited. It's the nature of specific lust pattern. The lust pattern specifically. So not the sin nature. Not the entire sin that's in view here. It's within the sin nature, yes, because of the lust pattern. But the lust pattern is the point of attack of the sin nature. Right. It, doesn't, it doesn't attack your rebel, rebellion. It doesn't attack your do-gooder. Although I have a high suspicion that circumstances do. And that's a different story. <clears throat> and it's a different study. But tonight in James 1.14, it says specifically that the epithumios, which again is that irrational desire or longing for something, <clears throat> is what, and that part of your sin nature is what you're being tested under and dragged out under and baited under. <clears throat> a parallel example, each criminal is sentenced under his own crime being tried and judged. The trial and the judgment of a criminal occur under the specific crime he committed, allegedly, of course. 
The crime does not try or judge the criminal, but rather he is judged under the agency of his crime by those with the authority to do so. Does that make a little more sense? Does it make a little more confusion? Kind of both, huh? <clears throat> if you commit a crime, you're going to be charged under having committed that crime, not something else. But it wasn't the crime that made you. But it's not the crime that, that's trying you, and it's not the crime that's sentencing you. You'll be sentenced for your crimes, under your crimes. And you'll have to face the punishment for, the, for that because of the crime you committed. But it's under that crime that you are sentenced and judged. Same thing we're dealing with with temptations. You're tested underneath your sin nature, or underneath your lust pattern, excuse me, Freudian slip. Underneath your lust pattern, you are <clears throat> dragged out and baited. Okay? That's just to kind of support the whole, we don't drag out, the lust pattern doesn't drag out and bait. <clears throat> The individual lust pattern you possess is the agent under which, by which, if you will, you will be tested. You will be dragged out by force under your lust pattern. You will be baited under your lust pattern. The furrowed brows are because of that word by, right? Because I just got done saying, it's not the one that's doing it to you, okay? <clears throat> Some have translated as by because it's underneath it. And so it's by it that you are tested, but not it being the actor. Maybe I should have just left it out. I put it in there because I figured at that point we'd be ready to discuss that. Just ignore it, okay? The literal rendition is under. Sorry. Okay? And that's not a slam, okay? I thought you'd be ready by now, Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Apparently I can't explain it right either right now, so. <clears throat> God. Through the agency of it, or? Some have said by the agency of it. And so in that sense, by which, even though, like, going back to our criminal thing, each criminal is sentenced by his own crime. Does that kind of tie it in a little bit? Yeah. Okay. It's really not even significant to anything of what we're talking about. Okay. So just skip that little by which. Okay, you will be, the important part here is that you will be dragged out by force under your lust pattern, and you will be baited under your lust pattern. While the testing of an individual is targeted at their lust pattern, the process of the individual's testing is in that they are dragged out by force and baited in a way that appeals, excuse me, to their lust pattern. This is what I refer to as Tom and Jerry theology. How many of you guys have seen Tom and Jerry, the cartoon? What does Tom Cat do? He sets a trap with what? Bait. What's he use? Cheese. Jerry's a mouse. It makes sense, right? He puts it right next to the hole. Does it make sense? It's a cartoon. <laughs> Tom Cat sets the trap. He puts peanut butter on the trap for Jerry Mouse, okay? Maybe a little cheese just to be fun, all right? <clears throat> they couldn't draw peanut butter, that's why they went with cheese. Yeah, just to go crazy. You know, you never know, right? So this is, what, this is the same concept here. Satan and company set a trap. It's baited with something that appeals to your lust pattern, your peanut butter, your cheese, whatever it is. <clears throat> Tom sets a trap for Jerry using Jerry's favorite meal, a spoonful of cheese. Jerry is lured out to the trap by the bait, which appeals to him. It smells good. It looks good. It's going to taste good. Um, it will boost his ego that he beat the trap. Whatever you want to do, you can apply any of the lust patterns to it. There's a trap that's baited with something that appeals to the lust pattern. Jerry now must choose to take the bait and risk the trap snare or leave the most desired bait alone and remain alive. You are Jerry, who then is Tom? I already told you. Blew it. Forgot this question was coming. 
<laughs> Satan and company is Tom. They're the ones that bait the trap. They're the ones that drag you out. They're doing these things with or underneath your sin nature, under that concept of the agency of your sin nature. Now, notice that word, Jerry, those words Jerry must choose. Do we have a question? Well, you were talking earlier, you said 85% of the sins we're doing it to ourselves, right? So are we a little bit of Tom sometimes to ourselves too then? <clears throat> I don't know how that applies to analogies. In my understanding of Scripture, we are, but only after the bait has been set already. Okay. In other words, we don't bait ourselves. Now, if we're operating in sin, our lust pattern is going to have free reign. We're just going to go for whatever's out there. Okay. And I think that whatever's out there has already been produced and set up, okay. knowing that not just us, but other people fall for it. So the distractions, the, all that kind of stuff. So we don't set the bait, but we let ourselves look at it longer than we should. Yeah, or we yeah. say, ooh, more, ooh, more, ooh, more, yeah. ooh, more. You know? so once we start, okay. Yeah. And when I was saying that 85% of us, that's the battle we're going to fight, is, is mostly ourselves and our desire for it. Um, not so much that there's a bait on the trap. The bait's not the problem. It's that we desire the, the bait more so than we desire logically to stay in agreement with God. Which makes a whole lot more sense when you look at it. So we want to be in agreement with God, not with the stupid cheese or peanut butter. <laughs> it's just peanut butter, alright? <clears throat> alright, the source of testing is Satan coming. We just have a few more slides. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 11 to 12, which then goes on and says that um, after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then, having put on the full armor of God, and goes and lists all the different aspects of the full armor of God. It's a great thing to read. And, and when you get into a study about what each of those different aspects are, it's very uh, interesting to see the order in which they're put on and the way they're put on and how it works together when the whole thing is on. <clears throat> this is why, again, we say that it's not the bait that's the problem or the temptation that's the problem. It's the struggle that we have, not with the flesh and blood bait, but with the powers that are trying to deceive us, trying to entice us, um, and with the sin nature that we are fighting ourselves from following. The source of testing is Satan Company. Point two, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him, that's a command, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. If you read this verse in the New American Standard Translation, that word experiences will have experiences in suffering after it. That's all from the same word, and it means experiences. So I didn't put it in there because I didn't want you to get confused by the disharmony with this, the context. It's not talking about suffering in the sense of a righteous suffrage. It's talking about experience that you go through that is caused by Satan and company. <clears throat> First Peter 5, 8 is where we get that one. Um, that may also include part of um, verse 9, if you want to write that down too. So here's the, the summary. You'll be dragged out and baited under your lust pattern by Satan and company. They will set the trap with bait that is appealing to you. They do not waste their time baiting the trap with something that does not appeal to you. That didn't want to make any sense. Their job, they're trying to get you to stop producing good works. To stop doing the things that God has called you to do, to stop glorifying God. They're trying to cause chaos, trying to get you distracted, and their mission is to keep you from operating in the manner in which God designed you to operate. That's the whole point. They know they've lost. I can produce a study that shows the verses on this, that gives you this harmony. Um, <clears throat> when we are submitted to Him under His control and direction, that's our design. We're being obedient to Him. That's part of our design. Their job is to get us not to. They cannot take us over. Once you've accepted Christ, you're secure in Him. 
They can't come in, they can't knock on the door and take it and come in and take all your stuff. Okay, it's not gonna happen. You're protected by God, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you, He has that protective custody over you. So our design is to be submitted to Him under His control and direction, being obedient to His directive will in and out of every moment. Okay, now his directive will may be specific, it may be generic. Go to this school, go to school. Doesn't really matter. Um, it's up to God to identify what, whether he's going to be specific or generic. It's not our job to say, well, God said go to school, so i got to find the exact school he wants me to go to. He may have one in mind. But if he just wants you to go to school or just wants you to do something, he, and he's told you that, he's going to let you know everything you need to know about whether that's a specific or generic school. Our job, again, is to not let Satan and company do their job to get us to operate out of submission to God, um, outside of his control, and in disobedience to him. This is the battle that we will fight during our brief stay upon this earth in this flesh. We cannot remove the sin nature from within us. It is a part of us, which is why we fight it. This is God's job, not ours. Now God has said and declared that he will not, that he will not remove the sin nature from us on this earth. Get over it. We all have to. Because we will fight our sin nature for the rest of our life. We will want God to take our volition, whatever, just so we do not sin because it's such a bad thing. But he, can't take our, he won't take our volition, and he won't take care of our sin nature on earth. However, knowing the process of temptation, that we are targeted at a lust pattern, <clears throat> we can render its effects null and void by using our God-given volition to refuse the bait which is laid by Satan and company. Jerry Mouse doesn't have to take the peanut butter. He doesn't have to take the cheese. Those of you who still think mice like cheese. Okay. This guy. All right. I did a study. Now, um, it's, it's up to him. What's that? Yeah. Hey. No. No, I did a science fair project in it, and it actually went for peanut butter better, but either way. Um, the, the volition. I don't even know where to pick up. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're talking about mice and catching mice and having mice in the house, and I'm like, we got cats for that, and what's going on here? So <laughs> then I find out it's not my house. I don't know what's going on. Okay. That's why they're there, right? Read the slide. <laughs> okay. So we, because we know the process of temptation, we can stop it. We can render its effect null and void. We can feel the dragging. We can see the bait, but we don't have to be actually dragged out. That's the active and passive. Are we going to be passive or are we going to act? And with our volition, God's given us the resource we need to fight it. So in this way, God remains righteous and loving and gracious. He allows us to be tested, allows us to be, to, allows this process of dragging and baiting to happen. But in this way, he remains loving and righteous and gracious. Having provided for us the necessary tools to escape the effect of our sin nature, bringing sin out from within us. He's given us the, the scripture. He's given us the process. He's given us the protocol. He's given us the volition and decision-making capability within ourselves, the perception, the knowledge, all this stuff, so that we can understand that when this temptation process comes, he's provided everything we need to fix it, to not fall victim to it while self-evidently providing, at the same time, through volition, the ability to turn down the bait which has been laid by Satan company, to which we are so attracted, away from depends upon God and fellowship with Him. That is our focus. 
Our job is to glorify God. That is a byproduct of being in fellowship with Him, which means we have to depend upon Him, not our strengths, not our weaknesses, not our desires, not our own thought process. We have to be completely dependent upon Him, which is why He says, be still and know that I am God. So when we recognize that He is God and recognize that we are not, we're able then to receive data streamlined down to us. I think we made it. We did. Congratulations. Any questions? I think the interesting part about that process, especially being in Toledo for a while, 